Thank God for his amazing grace. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Good morning, Delivering Word. Our church, good morning, everybody. Truly is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord one more time on this beautiful Sunday morning. Uh, so grateful for God's grace and mercy throughout another week and for his protection. Um, just good to see everybody on the day. Uh, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into the word of the Lord. Um, as we have been talking through um, God at work, seeing God at work, we have been journeying through Genesis. Um, we, we will be journeying through Genesis, through Revelation. I know Pastor Joplin did Ruth on last week. A couple of weeks ago, I did uh, the book of Judges. So um, we're going to revisit some of that from a couple of weeks ago, but we'll be uh, picking up from Judges today in the book of First Samuel, First Samuel, well, First and Second Samuel. Uh, I have two key verses, two key verses, um, and we will get to those as we uh, get into the text. Um, but um, kind of just to set this up as being God at work, God at work in our lives, and what my desire is for today is that we see ourselves in this text. We see ourselves uh, in this text. It's, we can kind of look at it in two aspects. You can look at it as the micro, at the macro level or the micro level. The macro level will be dealing with Israel. The micro level, we will be dealing with individuals in this uh, text today. Um, so let's just let me pray for us. God, I just thank you for this word. I pray that the word goes forth, God, that you prick the hearts of everyone that's under the sound of my voice. Let your will be done. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Thank God and amen. So, first and second Samuel, we pick up here. It's kind of jumping over. If, if you're in, in Judges, you go from Judges, you get into first Samuel. Ruth actually takes place during Judges, but you want to continue in the narrative of what I preached about a couple of weeks ago when it's talking about sin as far as about be about killing sin or sin will be about killing you. So now we get into first Samuel with the birth of Samuel. So chapter one of Samuel opens up talking about Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. That's a troubled man. Okay. <laughs> Two, right? He had Hannah and he had Penina. Hannah had no children, but Penina did. And what's made this so bad, this chick was so cold, that because Hannah had no children, Penina would taunt her. She would provoke. She would irritate her. It's kind of, imagine somebody coming alongside you knowing that your womb has been closed and they just taunt. Nah, nah, you don't have any kids. Nah, ain't that it's just irritating her? So the Lord had closed her womb. And being able to have children back in this day was a big deal. <laughs> I don't know about today. It was a big deal back then because it was like, man, that was like the ultimate thing for a woman to bear children. Hannah had no children. She was barren. To the, to the place of hopelessness, to the place of depression, to the point that she wept and she didn't eat. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 7. It seems a little strange that Penina, who seems to have bad character, had children. Hannah is of good character, but was barren. We often don't understand the ways of the Lord until the plan fleshes itself out. Until the Lord completes his plan. But in verse 8 of chapter 1, Elkanah says to Hannah, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more than more to you than 10 sons? That's one key verse for today. Chapter 1, verse 8. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? In other words, Hannah, aren't I enough? Bad timing, Elkanah. Yeah, yeah. This is something that you can't provide, mister. She, there's an issue that I have with being barren. There's nothing you can do about that. Yet Elkanah asks, aren't I enough? Hannah vowed to the Lord. So Hannah goes to the Lord. Don't go to Elkanah. Hannah goes to the Lord, vows to the Lord. If you would just open my womb, I would dedicate this child to you. The Lord grants her desire and she dedicates the child to the Lord all the days of his life. This is a miraculous birth. We pretty much only see these types of births like three times in the Bible. You have Samson, Manoah's wife was barren. You had Samuel. In this text in which Hannah was barren, but you also have John the Baptist in Luke chapter one, Elizabeth was barren. These are miraculous births, all for the glory of God. God is ultimately going to get the glory out of this. So, Penina, you can have all these children, but Hannah's going to have the one that matters. God grants her request. The child is dedicated to the Lord. Enter Samuel. Samuel is, comes on the scene as the last judge, the prophet. Make sure y'all get that spelling right. P-R-O-P-H-E-T. It's a stark difference from the prophets of today. He was a seer. He was the priest. This guy was clean. It was, he was devoted to the Lord, even from birth. He is the last judge in Israel. And he will appoint the first two kings of Israel. He's the last and greatest judge of Israel's. And he's the first true prophet and priest. So Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. He comes on the scene dealing with Israel. Israel, as I mentioned earlier in Judges, they fail to drive out in Judges, drive out. Hittites, the Jebusites, all of the people that didn't have anything to do with the Lord. They took up their customs. They took up their gods. Samuel comes on the scene and he's still dealing with Israel, have not having not driven out the very things that the Lord told them, forbid them from having fellowship with. Samuel says to them, he says to all the house of Israel, I'm in verse three of chapter seven. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you 
out of the hand of the Philistines. Samuel is dealing with the idols that the Israelites still have that they fail to drive out. All right. Over the course of Samuel's life, the Lord is with him. He serves. But as a point at a time, he gets old. Time is coming for all of us. Hmm? Samuel gets old. And now the Israelites starting to, you know, lash out. We want a king. We want a king. Appoint us a king. How did he get to this point? Well, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, it says, Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turn aside again after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And when they asked him for a king, they were asking because now that he's getting old, his sons doesn't walk in his ways. We all have a choice to make. Mike has just finished testifying. Others testify. We are all products of those that have sown into our lives. But make no mistake, we still have a choice to make. Either we would follow in the way that they did or go our own way. Samuel was a noble man, but his sons forsake the path that the father was on. Verse five in first Samuel eight, they said, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the Lord tells Samuel, obey the people for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them in verse seven. But do warn them regarding the kings to come. What would be. The issue with the kings to come, the kings to come will take. He will take and he will take and he will take. Take what? He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields. He will take a tenth of your grain. He will take your mail service. He will take a tenth of your flock in verses 13 through 17. The king will take. He will take. He will take. God is not the taker. God is the giver. But Israel didn't want that. Give us what we want. We want to be like everybody else. When the reality is, it wasn't supposed to be you all and some king. It was supposed to be you all and me. I don't want that, Lord. Samuel, give me what we want. Give us what we want. He warned them. He told them that the king would take. But in 19 is where we see Israel refusing the instruction from Samuel because they want to be like everybody else. The Lord tells him to appoint a king. Man, it seemed a little strange. This is a little counter to what God wants. But he tells Samuel, give it to him anyway. God never meant for Israel to have a king because he would be the one that ruled over them. But since y'all want to be just like every other nation, go right ahead. And God gave them. God is giving them King Saul to to reign for 40 years. Then there would be David. And then later on, there would be Solomon. Of course, that's in first Kings. We won't deal with that, but we will deal with Saul and David. 
in the end, Samuel tells them, because this is what you all want, you're going to cry out to God because of the king that is taking and taking and taking that you chose for yourself. But God is not going to answer you. You're going to cry out to him and he's not going to answer you. Enter Saul. <laughs> Samuel appoints Saul in chapter 9, verse 16. The Lord tells him, tells Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him to be the leader of my people, Israel. He will rescue them from the Philistines, for I have looked down on my people in mercy and I have heard their cry. Oh, do y'all see this? See what the Lord is doing? Talking about the Lord at work. It, it may not make sense to anybody in this room. Why would the Lord do that? No, no, no. But God has the plan. It's the Lord that's at work. It doesn't have to make sense to me or you. But in this shape, some shape, form, or fashion, it's going to draw them back to him. We don't have to understand it. God is still at work and he's answering prayer, even though it's not good for them. It's going to lead them to him. Chapter 10, verse 9. Saul is converted. Saul is turned. He gets a new heart. God gives him a new heart and he starts on his way. Man, riding. I'm the king of Israel, man. I'm, you know, man, the Lord is looking down on me, man, all is well. I come from nothing. I come from the dirt. I come from, and you know, just a nation or, you know, a country in my little hometown that nobody knows. It's like, man, I've been elevated to the king's spot. So he, God gives him a new heart. And Saul is on his way. In chapter 11, he defeats the Ammonites, and man, he having wins. But by the time you get to chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, we're going to see two instances of his disobedience that leads to God's rejection. 1 Samuel 13 and 14, Saul's disobedience leads him down the road of rejection. What happens? He goes up to battle against the Philistines. Well, the Philistine army had about 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops. And so what happens, Saul gets a little jumpy. He gets nervous. He gets fear, panic, helplessness. But instead of crying out to the Lord and trusting God, he offers a sacrifice and thinking he's going to hear from the Lord regarding what to do about this enemy. Wasn't supposed to do that. Only the priests was supposed to offer the sacrifice. What he was supposed to be doing was waiting. Samuel told him to wait seven days till I get back. But what? Because of the troops mounting this, that, and something, he gets nervous. He makes this sacrifice. He makes a decision instead of waiting and trusting the Lord. That was strike one. And the last straw is in 15, 1 Samuel 15, verse 9. This was it for Saul. The Lord told him, hey, it's now time to judge the Amalekites for what they did to Israel. They came upon Israel, sieged them at a point of their lowest. They were defenseless. 
And Malachi's went in there and just, man, just wrecked shop. And so the Lord says, okay, it's now time for me to judge them. How I'm going to do that? You go in and utterly destroy, destroy these people. Don't spare anything. Kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child. Don't seem right, do it. See, we have a problem. Man, how could God say kill the child, kill the infant? But see, it's a double standard because if we had that kind of power, we'd destroy everybody. But the Lord, oh, man, that ain't right. Oh, no, he's this is judgment. This is God's judgment. When he says vengeance is mine, it is his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he says utterly destroy nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Don't don't leave anything behind. Dude, drop a nuke, drop the nuke and destroy everybody. But what did Saul do? He captured Agag. The king, he destroyed only what was worthless or of a poor quality. But anything of value, he kept. Oh, now that's not what the plan was, mister. What you were told to do is to utterly destroy. All right, so then when you follow down the rest of 15, he gets back with uh, Samuel. He tells Samuel, oh, well, I've done everything the Lord has said. The Lord told me to do so. Samuel says, hey, so what is this bleeding sheep that I hear in the back? What about all this oxen? Man, I, you know, eh, eh, you know, you're hearing the sheep and all that in the back. He said, well, we um, we, we did it what the Lord said and we got all these animals. We kept them to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. No. Samuel basically tell him, you honestly believe that the Lord needs these sheep, your sacrifice. And this is where you get the famous 15 uh, chapter 15, verse 22, where it says obedience is better than sacrifice. I don't need your stuff. I don't need your materialism. I don't need what you think you can sacrifice to bring to me. I need your obedience. Saul pleads with Samuel again, because at this point, the Lord is rejecting him. So Saul pleads with Samuel again, going to Samuel instead of the Lord. Hmm. Why wasn't trusting in and being obedient to the Lord enough for you, King Saul? The kingdom was torn from Saul that day and was given to someone else. Who would that be? Enter David. Now, so David comes on the scene and David is known as the man after God's own heart. I've heard just butchered interpretations of this text over the years. I've heard it as a get out of jail free card for the preacher or the pastor that the congregation is on them because of the scandal that has rid riddled the church or the community or whatnot. But when he says that he is a man after the heart of God, we want to understand that you got to compare the two. Look at King Saul, then look at David's life. Saul was a man after the Israel's heart. David was a man after God's heart. Saul was all about image, prestige, and everything that don't matter. The stuff that consumes us as individuals has absolutely nothing to do with the Lord, is the reason for us wanting these positions and these titles and everything 
in the name of the Lord, but doesn't have anything to do with the Lord because we have our own agenda. Saul has hit, had his own agenda. But unfortunately for him, God will now give Israel a man after his heart and raise that man up to be the next king. So what does that look like? A man after God's heart, heart honors the Lord. A man after God's heart esteems God as the king and not himself. A man after God's heart has a soft, repentant heart, for which we'll see a little bit later. So Samuel anoints David, of course, at Jesse's house, goes to Jesse's house. All of the ones parade one by one. That's got to be the one. It's got to be the one. No, no. OK, bring that the guy tending the sheep. OK, pour the oil on him, anoint him. That's David. So now the spirit of the Lord at this point has left Saul. And in chapter 16, verse 14, it says, now the spirit of the Lord had left Saul and the Lord was Lord sent a tormenting spirit that filled him with depression and fear. It was God's punishment on Saul because of his disobedience. I'm taking this kingdom from I'm taking it from you and giving it to David. And so David has successes. You know, David defeats Goliath in chapter 17. And by the time you get to chapter 28, he's in full swing. But unfortunately for Saul, he's still being tormented. Saul still was lost. He was broken. He was depressed because the spirit of the Lord had left him. He was functioning, but wasn't anointed. He did his thing as far as being the king, but the Lord, the spirit of the Lord had left him. And that because of that, he began to lose courage. The spirit withdrew from him. So much so, jealous of David, wanted to kill David. The Lord spared him several times. David had many successes, but when you get to chapter five, he's David's anointed. Well, this is in second Samuel chapter five. He's anointed king over Israel. By the time you get to 11, ah, there's where we got the downfall of David. But you all pay a close attention to what happens when in David's situation, of course, He's had many successes. He's, been, he's a man. He's the king. He's organized. He's got the troops. And they're winning. Man, the Lord is with him. The Lord is providing. David falls into sin. Unfortunately, for 2 Samuel chapter 11, you have the situation with Bathsheba and the plot to kill Uriah, which is his lead guy, because his wife got pregnant. David slept with Bathsheba. Bathsheba belonged to Uriah, did not belong to you, David. David, you already had wives. You already had concubines. You already had the lay of the land. What is the deal? And why is that not enough? So, unfortunately, Uriah dies. Bathsheba hears about it. She mourns. Regret, you know, has a period of mourning. But when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to move into his house, along with all the other wives and along with all of the other concubines. But man, just like you have a Saul to a Samuel, uh, a Samuel for a Saul, you have a Nathan for a David. 
Nathan in a parable calls David out. And basically it was about a rich man that had many flocks and herds and had a poor man with one lamb. Rich man takes the one from the poor man to prepare. He paints that picture, gives it to David. David says, man, a man who pulls something like that off, he deserves to die. He deserves to die. And he shall, should restore fourfold what was taken from the one. You took this one when you had plenty. <laughs> Nathan tells him, you are that man. At that point, Nathan lays the judgment of the Lord down. And this is in 2 Samuel um, 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. The Lord tells Nathan to tell David, now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. What sword? Sword of death. You will pay a fourfold restitution for Uriah's deaths. Y'all see that? You want it fourfold for the guy that took the, you, the one little lamb. You're going to receive fourfold for this act. Putting Uriah on the front line so that he'd be killed when David was going to withdraw the troops. That restitution for Uriah's death. And the Lord said, I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. So all that you have, David, why wasn't what the Lord had already provided enough? Saul, why isn't what the Lord had provided enough? Why wasn't it enough? Israel, for the Lord just to be you and him and fellowship with you and the Lord. Why wasn't it enough? The Lord is enough for us. He is at work in our lives. He worked through the life of the Israelites, bringing them out, delivering them from the hand of Pharaoh. Lord, I want something else. Why am I enough? This is what the Lord is saying. I am at work in all of your lives. Why am I enough? Haven't I made the way? Haven't I opened up the door? You see, us as a people now, we have to have everything and all of the other stuff that has nothing to do with the Lord. It's almost like we want to point the glory back to us, unfortunately. We want to glory in what only the Lord can do. We just got to have everything else. But the Lord is saying, I am enough. We may feel as though that next relationship or that next vehicle or that next house. When I get that, I'm good. When I get to that VP level, I'm straight. I'll be balling out, man. I'll be able to do this, do that. Why isn't what the Lord has for you right now? Enough. God says, I am enough. It is God that's supposed to have that place in our lives. Take a lesson from Hannah's situation. Take a lesson from Saul's disobedience. Take a lesson for David falling on his knees in repentance, writing Psalm 51 humbling himself before a holy God. Know that the Lord is enough and is at work in your life. And even as our lives are marked by confession and repentance, 
we see the Lord through the finished work on the cross conform, mold, and shape us into who he desires us to be. Know today, you all, that the Lord is enough. Amen? Let me pray. Now, God, I thank you. Thank you for today. God, thank you for this word. I just honor you, Lord, and pray and ask God for your forgiveness for the ways that we have forsaken you. Any shape, form, or fashion, God, I pray, Lord, that we look to you and to you only to provide, to be enough for us. Help us, God, to appreciate the work that you're doing in our lives and even more of an appreciation for the work that you've already done through your son, Jesus, by sending him to die on the cross for our sins. Help us, God, to live in that reality that you are enough and that you've loved us in spite of us. We thank you, God. We love you. And we ask all these things in your precious son Jesus' name. Thank God and amen.